0: Welcome to Common Sense Medicine, a podcast where we think about common sense and how we know it's not common in medicine. So today I have the pleasure of having Stuart Blitz on. He has extensive experience operating in the healthcare industry, which is why I wanted to talk to him. He's currently the co-founder and chief operating officer at Hone Health which is a meds optimization clinic that offers at-home blood tests, telehealth consultations, and medication delivery. Prior to this, Stuart held the position of Chief Business Officer at Seven Sense Biosystem, as well as Agomatrix. He served as the Executive Director of Business Development and Strategy, as well as the Director of Worldwide Commercial Development. Um, Stuart's experience spans over several years and includes a focus on improving healthcare systems and providing convenient solutions for consumers. So with that very broad, extensive bio, welcome to the show, Stuart. Thanks so much for having me, Tree. So I actually wanted to get started with kind of how I found you, also your background. So mm-hmm. you're working at Home Health right now, but I'd like to back up and see when you started, your inception in the sure. health tech sphere. So I was doing some research and I realized that you started your career at Agonatrix, which was a diabetes care company. And you marketed the first ever FDA approved device on an iPhone. I think that's pretty historic. So I'd love to learn more about that.
1: Sure. So, yeah, so started my career, joined uh, two founders at Started Augamatrix in the diabetes space. Um, joined them, seemed really interesting. I had done, you know, biomedical engineering in college. And so, kind of, I was. Um, I went to Johns Hopkins, and so I was kind of like the the black sheep there because everybody wanted to go to med school or or do government research. And so me wanting to go into entrepreneurship and and startups was quite, honestly, quite bizarre for for Johns Hopkins. And so... Joined them and um, learned a ton, and I think it was it was really amazing because I ended up joining founders that are were incredible and are incredible. have gone to do other really interesting companies, and so uh, it was an amazing experience working with them. We made glucometers, as you mentioned, uh, that you know if people remember. In prior days, before all these CGMs came on, you kind of prick your finger and, and put a drop of blood onto a test strip, and so. We started, uh, you know, they had some tech, we had some technology that would make them more accurate and we could do certain things. And so we launched a medical device company. And so we started selling our products around the world. Uh, We ended up getting them into uh, retail pharmacies. What's interesting is even today, shockingly, you can go into a CVS and buy the CVS glucometer. I was in one the other day and it still blows my mind. 15 years later, whatever it's been, 14 years later. And that device that we made is actually still on their shelves. Uh, so which is really cool. Yeah. Uh, you go in Target, you can go into Target, Kroger, lots of other brands. Um, and then, as you pointed out, this is kind of right when Apple was kind of getting into to health tech. Um, and so we started working with them right around when the iPhone came out. Um, and so we made the first ever FDA clear medical device that kind of connected to the iPhone. Um, this is, you know, way before, you know, they said it's more common. But we had to, you know, build a piece of hardware with a 30-pin connector in it, right? Which sounds easy, but think about all the medical device validation you have to go and, and put yeah. that in. Um, and it was really cool, and so that actually helped us uh, get a partnership with Sanofi because uh, they were looking for w- innovative ways to expand their uh, insulin program, uh, and so and they liked the offerings that we had. So we did a big partnership with them, and so. Uh, that was toward the end of my time there. and It was a worldwide partnership. And so they paid us to develop a lot more products and they distributed our products in probably 20 or 30 countries at that point.
0: That's awesome and impressive resume for doing your work. I guess over 10 years you've been at this company. I think now in the era of COVID, a lot of early career professionals like myself happen to jump around from company to company, not so much with doctors because we have a very stable kind of, type right residency yeah. and fellowship and then attending but i guess why did you decide to stay at um, Aga agamatris for so long it's, What it's, really it's a really
1: it's think? a really good question right because i think that's you don't see that a lot these days and when i when i look back on it it was a lot of i would say i was there for for about 10 or so years and it was almost like two to three every two to three years we did something new and so it kind of it it ends up being that long, but didn't feel that long because, you know, the first couple of years, it was very classic startup survival mode. It was like, Hey, we, we had originally, you know, I mean, this is, this tells you like kind of the startup story. We originally thought, Hey, we're going to, we're going to sell software so that people, uh, companies that make the glucometers can make them better. And right, that if people don't know the industry, that's the dumbest, yeah. it's the dumbest thing ever, because you don't make your money in those, right? It, it's like, it's like the classic yeah. printer and printer cartridges, right? It's like yeah. you basically it's give the, away the, the printers. Yeah. Exactly. And so we're like, well, this is stupid. We should just build a meter and a strip. because yeah. You make your money on the strips. And so, uh, so the first couple of years are very classic, like, Hey, let's figure out what you're working on, raise some more money, know where you're going. Then we spent the next couple of years after that saying, great, now we know what we're building. Let's go get our first sales. And so we did some early partnerships. We got signed a deal in Canada, signed a deal in Europe, signed a deal in Mexico, signed a deal in Australia, like just all a bunch of places that would actually distribute our, our products, some in the U.S. as well. Actually, a very big one in the U.S. that people know of a company called Liberty Medical. Uh, they were known a number of years ago where Wilford Brimley would do advertisements for them. They were one of these companies that uh, provided medical products to, uh, to people on Medicare. And so we get a, get a product for them. And so that was really fun and interesting, got products into those hands. And then after that, we said, okay, great. Now we've gotten an initial base of revenue. We were kind of like getting more closer to sustainability. Great. Now we really got to go fight, you know, a lot of these hard, complex systems in the U.S. healthcare and say, hey, how are we going to get our products into all these different pockets? So we hired a, hired a sales team, uh, a more seasoned chief commercial officer who kind of knew all these ins and outs. And that was a few years, right? Then we had the opportunity of working with the product connected to an iPhone and then got the Sanofi deal. And so then it was like, oh, wait a second, we're going to keep going with our core business. But wait a second, this you know, multi-billion dollar, one of the largest pharma companies in the world wants to use our products. Now we're going to have to support mm-hmm. them and support them in across the world and build new products for them. And so it was just interesting because even though it was a long time, every couple of years, we kind of had a different focus of sort of the core group of us that were working there.
0: Yeah, you know that's very interesting. Moving from strategic initiative to strategic initiative, I was actually reading one of your articles about how to be scrappy at a conference for for like <laughs> introducing ideas to yeah. people. And one of the ideas was around like getting a conference badge of any any way possible, trying to figure out where the VIP. So I, I understand where you're coming from, where the scrappy mentality comes from. Yeah, I was just wondering, like your your switch from that to the next. Yeah, that you were going on, you were entering in a much higher role and you were kind of with working with a flagship, which is like a venture backed uh, startup instead of just starting your own. How did that kind of play into your
1: calculus for your next career move? Yeah, I mean, I obviously had, you know, had a lot of experience in health tech and saw a lot of interesting things happening in diagnostics. I'd actually met Seven Sense years before I ended up joining them. Uh, when they were trying to figure out what their product was, they had an earlier version of the device that they had that they were didn't know what to do with, but it was almost like if you think about a, a more interesting type of Lancet for people with diabetes, that's how I had met them because one of our medical advisors actually knew them. And it wasn't very interesting for the application, frankly, because if you think about Lancets that you know used for glucometers, they, they cost you know fractions of a penny, right? They're just basically free, Right. And so, if you had this device that would cost in the orders of dollars or tens of dollars, right, it just never would make any sense. But they kept going, and they kind of realized, like, wait a second, there's this interesting angle of people are now going to do more uh, testing and healthcare at home. Um, if you're going to do blood mm-hmm. tests, right, you have the glucometers and things where you take a very small drop of blood. But other than that, you're just going to a lab corporate request, right, to get to get a blood draw, and there was nothing in the middle, and so. I think they were hitting on that right around the time, you know, for all her faults, like Theranos is making a lot of press around the, the concept. And, you know, she was never wrong about the idea of, hey, if you could make a product that did this, wildly, it would be va- wildly used, wildly valuable. Um, and so the concept of having this device that could collect blood was really, really interesting. And so that's kind of why I, I said, wait a second, there's so much you could do with this. Um, and so when when I you know met the team and I said wait a second this is really cool um, there are some interesting kind of niche applications but I was like wait a second the at home collection space is kind of like they they were craving something like this because that's those that's a category which is people have more propensity to pay for a little more money for something right they want to have a better experience they want something that's painless right. um, and so. That it was an interesting experience because I really learned so much about the about the lab market and about how those products work. Now, what was cool was it was kind of right at the time when all the direct to consumer lab companies were forming. So I, you know, met all those companies doing that. It was when Roman and Hims were starting out, and so saw mm-hmm. saw this interesting direct consumer access angle for, you know, medication, and my learnings kind of taught me to to real to kind of i'd say one of the key things i learned was the the seven Sense product and there's other there's there's other products like it in the space they're all very interesting but they all haven't sort of i would say hit that plateau yet in terms of, or hit that inflection point yet of getting to really mass adoption and there's a number of reasons why right but it's like there, there's there's a cost angle there's a lab compatibility angle there's usability angle yeah because like you know if you think about if you think about doing a a test or doing a blood collection a LabCorp corp request. If you're a phlebotomist and you let's say you grab a tube or a needle out of the out of your your bag, right? And you try drawing blood on somebody and there's something happens. Well you just toss it away and use another one, right? If you're gonna send this device to somebody's home, it's gotta work reliably 99, you know, very high percentage of the time. Those devices, it's just it's not there yet, at least from what I've seen. Maybe they're getting getting over here. So I think it's gonna get there. But what that experience taught me was, I saw all these at-home uh, companies forming. I saw you know, Roman, I saw Hims. and my, my thesis was very much, I love that model. I think there's going to be a lot more direct-to-consumer cash pay uh, access companies started, but I think they're going to form around, I would say, very high-need patient populations that aren't getting served mm-hmm. by the current system. I frankly didn't know which patient population to go after. I made some friends doing other types of conditions, and I was thinking, okay, well, which, which condition to go after? As luck would have it, met my co-founder, Saad. Um, he, mm-hmm. had, he had been an entrepreneur. He had done pharma before. He had been an entrepreneur in the ed tech space, and then he turned 35, and he had, at the time doing about it, all the yeah. symptoms of low testosterone. Went to his doctor. His doctor said, this is just old age. That's my diagnosis. He said, this is crazy. And so he had started to formulate what would now eventually become Hone Hone, uh, himself. And so he actually had approached us uh, at 7 Cent saying, hey, I wanna use these blood collection devices because they're really cool. They could make our offering better. And I said, look, I'll send you a bunch of samples, but it's not gonna work. And there's a lot of reasons why, again, what you're measuring and kind of the thing, but hey, what do you explain your business to me because this is something I've been kind of thinking about doing. And I it was the missing piece. I didn't. I hadn't known anything about low testosterone or that patient population, uh, and so we kind of realized we want to work on the same thing. And so that's how we met and came together and said, "Wait a second, actually, we work. Uh, we, we, we think we can work really well together." And that's how we met and came together. Uh, that's probably four four and a half years ago now.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. A, that's an awesome transition and a great story that leads one into the next about how you kind of progress through your own career. Yeah, I think that thesis is very interesting though the bigger access, greater TAM markets have more penetration, right? When you have a need, right, more people are willing to pay for cash in order to get that direct-to-consumer yeah. market. With that angle, though, there are a couple of things that I think you need to solve on, right? One, you don't have a doctor telling you have the condition, so you need to know that you have it, yep. You need you know that you need to treat it, and then also you need to figure out how can I – Find the right doctor who also knows how to treat this and give them the regimen to treat it. Yeah. So being an operation specific person, how do you close these gaps and how do you think about market development for this particular problem?
1: Yeah, so so when we started when we started at that time, we called it something else, and we then we used the word we used the the brand name Peak for a while. That was just because we didn't know, yeah. you know, we hadn't really formulated a whole kind of like brand identity yet. Um, we we kind of knew the structure of what we needed to build. We knew that we had to do some lab testing. We knew that there had to be physicians that would see our patients, to your point, because they're the ones that have to, you know, just like no different than going into a bricks and mortar clinic, right? And so we said, okay, well, we have to go build our own physician network. Um, that was something I think really core to what we did. Um, you know, a lot of the uh, direct consumer companies when they started would use companies like uh, Wheel or SteadyMD. Because we are providing specialty care, we just felt really strongly that we had to go out to, and to your point, to find physicians that just had that specialty. Uh, And we had to learn about those types of physicians, right? And so we had to learn like, hey, um, who are the ones, who, who knows about that patient population? where do they come from right people think about well the urologists or endocrinologists and certainly there are some but they, what we found is they kind of span across many different uh, disciplines in medicine uh, many different specialties yeah. and they and they come everybody comes from a different place like somebody you might find a physician who's a family practice physician that says i know this population because I just happened to raise my hand when we started having men with low testosterone come in. I didn't know about it. I educated myself. I started treating them. I learned more. And then a couple of years later, great, I'm kind of like the de facto expert in my practice, right? Or some physicians would say, hey, I, you know, they work in emergency medicine, but they say, hey, I actually had low testosterone as a patient. And so yeah. I knew that so everybody came at it from a different angle. Uh, and so that was a a really important, I would say, decision we made early on that I think is still paying dividends today. And we have an amazing group of physicians that sees our patients every single day.
0: Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about trying to find an amazing physician, right? As a physician myself, or as a budding physician myself, I think that I I know a little bit about the doctors that are trying to go into telemedicine, right? One thing I found very curious about your search for a physician is... One, you have to, you know, if a physician is interested in your clinic within five minutes, it could be that they're taking the call from the emergency room. Probably, one, they're, probably, they're one, nice probably one minute or less. <laughs> probably five is too long. I need one. So yeah. And, and some of the things you cited are very true, right? You got boomer docs who don't know how to use a hangout and you need to send them the hangout. And then there's a problem. What has been the most annoying experiences that you've had to recruit physicians?
1: So um. Well, let me actually do this as, as I, before I get into that, maybe I'll just quickly give you a couple there's one minute just on like explaining what HONE is and kind of how we get yeah. to that point. Of so, course. Yeah. So Thanks. when, when, when we wanted to provide this, this service, we realized, Hey, let's provide care for men with low testosterone. So basically patients come in, they'll do a blood test. Uh, they'll get uh, about seven or eight biomarkers done at a lab. They'll then come meet with one of our physicians, which I'll get into in a second. So they'll have a, a very full 30-minute audiovisual consult, just like this, right? And they'll go into a very deep intake. They'll do a complete a, a, a telemedicine physical, uh, and they'll, they'll really go into kind of the symptoms and what, what, they're, uh, you know, what they think uh, their diagnosis is. If the physician finds that medication is appropriate for the patient, then they would prescribe medication, then patients can sign up for a, a monthly membership plan. Um, and so they, you know, provide a, a, a similar membership to, to maybe other companies that are out there and their medications get shipped uh, to their house, you know, every month. Our server is also very different. We're, we, our physicians follow uh, guidelines pretty closely in terms of what the accepted protocols are for treating low testosterone. And so our patients right. have, to have to complete a, another lab, another consult every 90 days for the first year. Uh, after that, it's every six nice. months and it's, it, you know, it, it kind of is, you're more stable but it's a, it's a pretty rigorous program. And so um, to, to answer your question, right? So what have we found when we're hiring physicians? Well, I can tell you that when we first uh, started interviewing physicians and you know our, our, our chief medical officer and our medical folks, some of the operations people, we had no clue what, what, what makes uh, somebody a really great fit, what makes somebody not a great fit. And we had to really learn this, right? And I think yeah. to, to your question, I think some of the key things that what I've found, and I, and I can probably tell within less than a minute, generally speaking, right? Because there's a couple of things. One do they understand this patient population, right? And so you really quickly, you, we put together a list of questions for them, like detailed questions that are like very easy about protocols around treatment of low testosterone. It's like, if you don't do know the dose, do like you, Yeah. Like, like what type like I, I'll tell you an ex, a perfect story. I remember somebody told us, yeah, they're like, I know this. I do this all the time. And we asked them like, well, what kind of dose would you give a patient? Right. They couldn't even tell me, <laughs> yeah. right. I'm not a doctor. And like, I, yeah. you know, I know this patient population. And it's like, if that's kind of worrying, right? If you, if you can't tell me, like, hey, what's, yeah, what's yeah. the most common dose you would give somebody of, of a certain medication, yeah. I'm going to guess you don't really have as much experience with that patient population that you said, right? So that's the first thing. But put that aside. Let's assume that they know that. Are you a good communicator, right? Um, can you, you know, respond, you know, to emails with a good cadence? Are you really interested, right? Or are you just shopping around because you're kind of a mercenary, right? And you're just like, hey, I want to yeah. fill my time, right? or you brought up the point. Am I taking the call from the ER? I have, I've had that a lot of times actually, where a physician would take a call from the OR, right. Or, or from, from, you know, the admin area. And it's like, I get it, but I'm like, well, I want to make sure you understand, like when you're going to see our patients, you're doing this, it's like a 30 minute consult. You, it's not like a, it's not asynchronous. It's yeah, not something yeah. asynchronous where you can just be on your phone looking at stuff and say, great, I'm going to prescribe birth control or E V meds or whatever. Um, and then it's, and you you saw, I think I said that, can you use technology, right? Like we, we've developed a lot of technology tools for physicians to use, uh, to, in the care of our patients can you do that, right? It sounds crazy. I've had a lot of doctors, they're like, Hey, where's the link you sent? I'm like, I sent you a calendar. right Like, and it's, it's not, it sounds kind of silly, but it's like, I, I just, I guarantee you if that physician can't. Do that on their own has enough technical know how to do that. They're not going to be successful, right? And so, like, we're going to get frustrated with them. They're going to get frustrated with us. It's just nobody's going to be set up for success. So that was a lesson that we learned. We learned pretty early on. um And and I think the the, the last one, which is kind of intangible, it's kind of just trust your gut. You know, I talk to my one of yeah. our, our my uh one of my colleagues, at VP of Ops, all the time. And like, we kind of look at each other sometimes. We're like, hey, if they, everybody's checked all the other boxes, but we're like. There's something bizarre. They've kind of gone away or like they didn't get back to us for several days or for a week. And like, you can kind of explain it once, but it happens again. You just kind of trust your gut and you're like, there's probably other stuff going on. They've got life going on. They've got their current you know, their job going on. They're just not going to be a great fit for this. And so that's, that's served us really mm-hmm. well. We have a really, really, really great group of positions right now.
0: Gotcha. So does that mean you have mostly contract physicians or is this
1: full-time workers? Good question. So we have a we have a mix across our range. We have we have some yeah. physicians that are seeing patients, you know, nearly full time, right? I would say you know, yeah. 30, 40 hours a week, and some that do it, you know, half day a week, something like that. It really goes across the range. Gotcha.
0: Gotcha. Thanks for giving me that intro into The home Mm -hmm. health and what you do, because I think it'll make my next question pretty easy to kind of understand. I think you mentioned that they have two consults and you follow guidelines pretty Mm -hmm. strictly. Um, One of the panels that you were on, it was about prescribing controlled medications, right? Testosterone is a controlled medication, and because of the rules around the Ryan Height Law, they can't prescribe it with telemedicine. I think the extension's up till twenty twenty four now. Who knows when they'll Mm -hmm. extend it to? But if that decides, if that rule reverses, then home health is going to be in kind of reckoning period, right?
1: So, no, and I'll, i kind of explain that. So, you know, um, there, there's been a lot of efforts around trying to formally change those rules for 15 years at this point, right? Because the, the intention of the rules is really around. Um, people trying, just Googling Vicodin and being able to buy it from, you know, yeah. illegal pharmacy, right? That was the intention. Right When when the Run Hate Act came out, this was like iPhone had just come out, right? This is like yeah. in the early days of even thinking about doing telemedicine consults like this. And so as, as technology grew, as telemedicine grew, it kind of became evident, like, well, we should trust physicians and practitioners, right? To, to if they are given the ability to prescribe medication, It's really up to them, right? They should do what's clinically appropriate. So, um, now to your point, you know, COVID hit. And so that, that was a kind of, you know, gave everybody a test run saying, all right, well, let's, let's see, let's see what happens here. And I think what, what you've, what we have, what we have seen over the last year, um, when the public health emergency ended back in the spring, the DEA made an initial proposal that they said, look. Um, we're gonna. We want to provide. We want to continue access, kind of as patients have been getting it. Their initial proposal, which has since changed, um, is that we hmm. would want a patient to once they're on medication, see a practitioner in person one time. Um, that was their their proposal, and par- paraphrasing, but that was kind of like the proposal. And there's a, a couple of details. Um, and frankly, for our patient population, it it would it'd be fine. Like our our patients, our patients that are that are. Uh, on testosterone, they're going to lab court every ninety days, right? Or going to a lab every ninety days, and so getting them to you know go see a practitioner you know one time to 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 kind of complete that visit, I think would have been okay. Since then, and since you brought it up, right? The they, they, recently they extended it to the end of next year. What's happening now is the DEA actually held two days worth of sessions in September, really listening okay. to all these constituents in in the in the healthcare system physicians to startups to pharmacists to state medical board just across the range and they're doing that because what they're proposing to do is basically put in a process called a special registration process which would just allow physicians to have a license or registration to do it so and i i I actually think that the dea truly wants to enable access i think they are they're Mm -hmm. demonstrating that and so i think candidly i think it will take them until the end of next year to do it. right? So I think having them extend it just only makes practical sense because it will take them time to put together a framework, get feedback mm-hmm. on it, put it out into the public domain, get more feedback on it, publish it again, and then give people enough time to put it into place. So yeah. it's just, it's the final rule. and then there's the final rule. And then if they're going to get physicians yeah. out to, to register, then they have to give physicians time to submit stuff to them to register. And then they have to approve it. And you know, so it's just going to take time. So, but I, I'm encouraged because I think they are, the DEA is doing a really great job of kind of saying, hey, like we, we hear you, we wanna make sure we're doing this appropriately, and I think that's they're doing a great job doing that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean to your point, I think that telemedicine only increases access. And if patients are going to get it, they're gonna find ways to get that direct to consumer access as seen by Romans and humans. So I think that what you're doing is great. It's just there are surprising things that come out both from a regulation standpoint and from a business operations employee that you don't know about, you know,
1: that'll kind of change your strategic priorities. Yeah, of course. And, and we're, we work, I mean, we follow that really closely. We work with, uh, Foley and Lardner, which is our telemedicine council. Like yeah. they're sort of the, one of the top, you know, telemedicine councils in the country. And so we're, we stay really close to a lot of the the laws that are kind of changing, um, uh, because it yeah. is a very new innovative area, right? Like the, the fact that yeah. you can do telemedicine, I mean, look at all the substance abuse companies and, you know, I mean, yeah. the, the fact that a lot of, a lot of these amazing care platforms have, have launched in the last few years, you know, yeah. is is kind of incredible, right? Like the fact that these populations had never been able to get such great access to care before is actually, you know, I mean, it's a wonderful thing that's come out of the pandemic. Obviously, the pandemic was terrible, but it's at <laughs> least something positive that can come out of it afterwards.
0: Yeah, and I think one surprising thing that I heard you talk about was most, um, most people on the home health protocol actually use injections and they also go to LabCorp Which to your point about people taking stuff at home, like it's surprising that it's kind of switched the other way where they're going in for blood draws and also like they're taking injection, which is more painful objectively, as opposed to like creams and stuff like that for
1: testosterone. It's it's true, you know, and and that's why it's funny because I had spent, obviously, spent time in the at-home collection space. When I was, you know, learning about it and, you know, maybe you're a bit naive, you think, oh, well, who wouldn't want to (laughs) do... Who wouldn't want to do this at home, right? But then you realize it's actually not about either or, it's not about, it's not not mutually exclusive. It's about, you want to have multiple options, right? Like you want to have, because patients have all sorts of needs, right? You could have a patient that lives, you know, in a city and there's three labs like within two minutes of them, right? Well, great, they'd rather just pop in 10, 30 seconds getting their blood drawn and be done, right? Or you could have somebody that lives 150 miles from the nearest hospital lab, and so they want to do it at home, right? That's or true. you've probably seen there's companies out there that are having, uh, they send phlebotomists to your home, right? And so it's like, we want to, but if you want to, if you're a patient, you would say, hey, you know what? I'll spend $50 and do that or whatever it costs. And so there's things yeah. like that. We want to, we want to provide as much access for our patients as possible because everybody has a different, uh, has different needs. And so we want to provide as much, you know, ability to to meet those needs as we can.
0: Yeah, I think it's an innovative practice model. These care delivery companies always, or at least tech-enabled services, is all about the services, you know, like it's tech-enabled, but at the end of the day, the service has to be convenient. It has to be fast. It has to be um, kind of providing the value that the patient wants yeah. in order to kind of succeed. And in that vein, I think, One question that I was trying to formulate around is like, how do you think about the unit economics of the business, right? The adding your care providers to make more access is great, but when the care providers cost a lot of money and onboarding an additional clinician is a lot of money, how do you reconcile the unit economics and how are you planning on like growing that in a sustainable way rather than? Uh, venture back we're going to start an all 50 states company
1: yeah so a couple things well i think the unidynamics have have to you know roughly work from day one I say roughly work right as you get bigger you have more economics of scale you'll be able to some lab pricing will get degrees and you know so you'll you'll, you'll have uh, be able to you know physicians will be able to say oh i can do more consults and so like you have some things changing as you grow but the core economics have to work right if you if you develop this model and they're kind of upside down and you see this, you know, to your point, a lot of direct consumer companies, they're take they were taking VC dollars in, throwing it in marketing, growing the top line, you know, revenue and patients, but but losing money every single person yeah, they got, awesome. right? And so I think we've been, you know, much more disciplined in terms of hey, we're going to grow more slowly, but we're going to really focus on that, and I think that's really, really important. And it just it works it works for our model, um, and also that that's just kind of how we built it. we built the business. To answer your second question, where we're going, right? We're in low testosterone care right now, which is great, and we only serve men right now we want to expand you know weight loss and thyroid and, and women's care there's there's so many other other right. areas we can leverage our technology to to expand into that only serves to help the unit economics because we have patients that come to us today that they come they'll do a blood test and they'll see a physician and the physician might say hey you have some of these symptoms it's not low testosterone like i actually don't think that's your diagnosis wonderful right they're going right. to they're here we're going to say hey might you might try extra wide? we're not providing that care today but hey go somewhere else we want to be able to say okay well maybe the physician was saying well listen i think the first thing i would do would be lose some weight we don't be able to help with that right and so today you know the 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 irony is that today these these patients haven't had access to any care or 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 finding it difficult to find us but our care they're writing is just you know only so wide and so we say, great, go find care locally, but that's kind of what they you know, didn't have in the yeah. first place. So as we expand a bit more broadly, I think that will help.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that I saw on your Twitter, I, I know you're known for your hot takes on Twitter. <laughs> it was just wondering for one of the tweets that you had was around this idea that insurance is only should be there for yeah. catastrophic insurance and then cash pay for everything else. I'm wondering how that looks like. Is that like an end state for home health looking at metabolic health? This is like we're going to cover everything that you need on a clinic basis, but if there's like something, I don't know, like a pheochromocytoma crazy tumor, endocrine tumor, that's like
1: that's to yeah, the hospital. Yeah, it's a good you question. Know? I'll be honest with you. I was I was sitting in very very bumper to bumper traffic when I tweeted that because I was just like I'm just curious. I'm just going to put something provocative <laughs> out there and see what people say. I I you know, it's funny. I I don't know if that happens in 20 or 30 years. Maybe it's longer, maybe it's never. Cause yeah. I, I there the, was a couple people responded and they were kind of like, a lot of people said, hey, I agree, that's where we're gonna get to. A bunch of other people said, hey, I don't think so, and here's why. I think I think it could take longer if ever. And the reason is just in general, right? There's so many, there's so many players that like have different interests in healthcare. That the moment you think like, mm-hmm. hey, we should do X, like why wouldn't, why wouldn't that be good for patients everything? I guarantee you there's always an other side of that. People are making money off of that. And so they're always going to push against that happening, right? And so that's kind of why like even though there are things I think in healthcare and that's one of them where it's like, well, look, why don't you pay, you know, cash pay for a lot more things that just more competition, better right. for patients, right. all this stuff because there's people making money on selling that to insurance companies instead of for a hundred dollars for a thousand dollars, whatever the hey. product or service is, and their interests are gonna be not aligned to making that actually happen. And so I, I, All you know, right. and I think somebody responded, I think it was Chris responded and said, well, yeah, but look at like high deductible health plans today. Like they haven't, you know, they haven't been that successful. And it's kind of, and it's kind of like yeah. a, a segue into that. And it's, it's a really good point because, um, I there's just there's just so many issues that bubble up on on a longer term lens and so many different stakeholders that that have different interests that I you know I I don't <laughs> I, I kind of just threw that out there as like yeah. a long but it, it actually could be fifty years a hundred years or never I, I you know I actually would probably bet the over on that that it would take a longer time. Yeah, I mean, to your point about being.
0: A different market, right? There's payers that they need to sell to in order to make more money. Maybe that's why they're defending it. I would say even the fact that consumers, as patient, if patients are the consumers rather than being payers, the consumers, they're more price discerning, right? You know, you notice that thirty dollars. One hundred and fifty dollars, mm-hmm. how much ever the monthly subscription is coming out of your paycheck, whereas if you're yeah. going to a doctor there's moral
1: hazard right you're just i like, don't care well, I'm not, not I'm not paying, paying for it. Me, so yeah I'm not paying care. for it exactly. so whether this doctor over here charged you know two hundred and fifty dollars for my visit and this other here charged one hundred and fifty dollars, i don't know, I don't care, and so my insurance pays yeah. for it
0: exactly, so in that vein in consumer health tech is it just a race to the bottom because People see the price tag and they're like, yeah, I can get testosterone from $30 from uh,
1: ABC clinic instead of home. Like, let me go there because they're more price discerning. Yeah. I mean, I think as some of these D2C markets become more competitive and more services go in, I certainly think you're going to see some competition and, and some, you know, you're not going to have as much uh, ability to, to set prices and, and people will look around and say, hey, but I also think kind of like any market, right? There are plenty of places today where you can get care for testosterone that are half the price, right, of what we provide. Yeah. But a lot of those patients come to us and they say, hey, I, you know, I really feel like I want to have, you know, just medical care. I feel, you know, I, I feel better about. Uh, and there's yeah. and there's plenty of places that are a lot more expensive th- than us. But there are you know, doing a lot broader set of panels there. Are maybe some of them are in person, more concierge medicine where it's like, hey, I'm going to see you for two hours every three months. It's just different. There, you know, just like any consumer offering, you have uh, offerings that are across the spectrum of what you're paying for and, you know, how, how comprehensive it is.
0: No, for sure. And I think that this idea around value stems from the fact that, one, you can have the key offerings that you've, carve a niche out but also you have the ability to grow and expand and whole health has a lot of that because to your point about keeping operating margins small you've been able to do that and then build up the cash that you can then invest in the growth into longevity drugs growth yeah. into endocrine metabolism drugs et cetera, right so i guess my next question is around that idea of operating as the mm-hmm. coo you're in charge of all operations <laughs> right that is a new role for you after mm-hmm. being business development. How do you think about operating a company like that and keeping OpEx low in order to grow that
1: net margin? So I, I think one of the key learnings we've had is really, truly understand what you're building and which what patients you're serving. And I know like it kind of seems a lot of people say this, but it's true. Honestly, start using Google Sheets before you do anything else. Right? You can do a lot with Google Sheets, okay. and so. But if you use Google Sheets and you and you sort of start with your first patient, your first ten patients, your first twenty patients, you really begin to, um, you really begin to understand. Hey, what are the technology I should go build, and what do I have to build to now serve a thousand patients or ten thousand patients? Right, and I think just keeping that in mind because I do think I see a lot of times. You'll see companies that jump into just building right away, right? They'll say, hey, I know what I want to go build. And I would argue until you serve, you know, a thousand patients, like you probably don't know what you need to build. Um, And so so I think that those learnings are really critical and then figuring out, okay, well, how... I feel more confident what I'm going to build and that can help make make operations more efficient. But and, and to your to your point about operating efficiently, mm-hmm. you know, when we we built our own EMR, we built all this whole really sophisticated infrastructure to help, you know, operate the business. And I remember when we we started bringing on some folks to help us help us run that program, they were looking at it and saying, like, hey, I'm gonna have to have I'm gonna have to hire three times the team as we grow, right, in two years. But but if we build all this technology, maybe I won't. And it's actually kind of cool because we built all this technology. It took a little longer than we thought, and we've you know probably only had to increase headcount by thirty percent or something like that, right? And so yeah. and it's it's proven that hey, if you build a bunch of technology because you know you know how the business works, you know how to how to serve patients, how to provide tools for your clinicians, um, you can run you can operate it really yeah. efficiently.
0: That's really interesting. I did want to talk about the EMR mm-hmm. things. In the interest of time, just wanted to get a quick overview of how that process went and what roadblocks you could talk about building a compliant <laughs> EMR because I know that CMS has a bunch of guidelines yeah. on those HHS, like to like make sure that meaningful use is according so, like, is carried out the way well, they want
1: So it. I, I would first of all say that and this is I have debates with other founders all the time about this, we're not serving that population right now. So so we kind of right. didn't take that as a constraint for us because we said all right, well, listen, gotcha. we're not going to go into that population right now or that, you know, get it billing Medicare. So it, that's not a constraint for us. But I, you're completely right that, like, if you're going to go into that population, then you've got to think about it differently from day one. So we didn't we didn't have that constraint. Um, gotcha. But we that's a okay. oh, no, I just thought that's surprising because is it only
0: cash pay? You're not contacting with any payers yet? Right so it now, doesn't... it's all cash pay.
1: Yep, all cash okay. pay. And I could talk Gosh. more about, you know, we're definitely planning going into commercial <laughs> commercial payers and, and going down that path, but it's all cash pay right now. So we didn't we didn't really start with that as a constraint. Um, We did use a third party to start with, right? So, so kind of like everybody else, we said, hey, let's grab something off the shelf that's kind of the best of what's out there there's been a lot of other interesting ones to come out since then. So like, you know, had we launched a year after we did or two years after we did, we probably would have used something else to start with, but we used an off-the-self platform and it was, you know, kind of bad, right? I mean, it, it was, it was fine and it kind of helped us limp along, but it helped us learn It helped us know what we wanted to build. Uh, and that, and that, and that's what we did. And so, and the, the, I would say the more, Valuable and interesting part of what we built is less per se the EMR because the EMR is like, hey, I'm, I'm doing notes and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm writing tools physician. That's fairly straightforward, but it's more of a sophisticated patient, you know, journey automation. I would say because if you think about it, there's so gotcha. many different areas where you might need to do different things for for patients if you're managing a lot of patients you want to make sure that hey oh a physician hmm. might say hey uh sri I actually you need to get this additional lab i want to see cuz hey i noticed your labs look good but there's something here i wanted to gotcha. i wanted to check your liver enzymes again great i got to make sure you do that right how do we gotcha. know that you're going to do that versus somebody else and so we wanted to build the uh, right tools right. that way then you you know you as a physician be able to 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 have that be able to manage the patient yeah that's really
0: interesting i think we don't think about operations in such a. I mean, it's a lot of ad hoc things that are kind of built on, right? And to your point about getting one person or a free tool to kind of do it first, and then when it's reaches its absolute maximum capacity, then move on to something and build it up that way. I think one of the quotes that you had said on a different podcast was like, "Yeah, it was eighty percent there, but you're always going to be wanting that twenty percent that isn't there." So I think. That, that brings me to my next question, which is around the interactions with people as you're kind of growing this org, right? Each marginal you hire from a 10-person company to an 11-person company, that's like 10%, or a little less than 10% of the company that you're adding. Mm-hmm. So it's a very significant decision for starting off with five co-founders, how did you get along? Or I guess because you were all veterans of the space, you had started companies before you kind of knew the ropes or how did it yeah, work out? I mean,
1: and we all kind of had, we all had our area of expertise. Um, you know, Sad and I have a really good complementary skill set in terms of things because it, it's, you know, we're both, we, um, you know, he's really great at sort of marketing and brand and, 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 and sort of like the user journey. cause he came at it from a patient point of view. Right. And I'm, finance and ops and and sort of like you know work a lot with our our telemedicine lawyers and so we have a we have a pretty complementary skill set and then we have others right alba had done marketing for keeps right so it was like roman hymns and keeps is the third biggest company so from a direct to consumer um you know uh men's health even specifically marketing right that was her domain expertise right i'm not a paid social acquisition expert. That's not my, I mean, I understand, you know, I, right. I know, I know how it works, yeah, but I'm yeah. not, I'm, you know, I know that's not my background. And then, and then, you know, we no. had uh, Matt who had worked with Saad previously, uh, you know, as our CTO, he had built these very complex systems in, in ed tech before. And so building them for, for help tech yeah, kind of okay. made sense. So we all kind of had our, our areas. And then, and we really, you know, we really started expanding the team only once it was clear, like, Hey, actually, yeah, there is a big patient, you know, their need for this. Oh, we're we're starting to see a lot more patients while we now have to go, you know, expand the team. And so we did that intentionally. I, I, I'm a big believer that kind of like you need to grow your team, you know, almost too late, I guess, to some extent, because I think I I often see companies Mm -hmm. that grow and get bloated too early. Um, And then if you have too many people there, well, it's it's always, you know, you're always going to be busy and have stuff to do, but it's kind of like, but if you get too bloated to begin with, probably didn't need to be. And then it just, you know, it kind of doesn't set yourself for the future.
0: No, for sure. I think that looking to the future is is a very good thing when you're thinking about, okay, I want to do this sustainably. At 10 years, I want to also be mm-hmm. at home health, not <laughs> at a different company after it went mm-hmm. down, you know what I mean? So I think that it's it's a good mentality to have. I think just like looking at your arc of your career as a long trajectory, I think the business cycle is also similar when you're, aligned with the the vision, you know? I think one question that I also had was around that um, future of home health that you had kind Mm -hmm. of laid out, where it's like, we're looking to partner with commercial payers. We already have a partner pharmacy, we're cash pay. What does that look like? Does it look like you submitting claims like to an actual payer for home health
1: services? contracting with them for value-based care? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, it's a good question. I think at a, at a minimum, we want to be able to be at a place where you get a network with payers so we can reduce the out-of-pocket costs every month, right? Because our patients, you know, like they're paying cash out of pocket. So if you can massively reduce that for patients, they're going to pay some amount of money every month. But if you can then submit claims to insurance for the consultations or, or whatever you can submit claims for, um, that will help. And so now patients can leverage their insurance. So that's something, that's a, a project that we're going down to try to, to, to do that because I think that will help uh, with our current patients and new patients. Um, and then, as I mentioned before, we want to expand the the areas that we're, you know, the, the therapeutic categories that we serve. There's so many others that our patients and our physicians are asking about. So it's kind of a natural like, mm-hmm. hey, if we could arm physicians and patients with these tools and and medications, you know, and the sort of systems in order to to do that. That's something that our, our, our physicians feel strongly could help our patients. So that's, that's great. That's what we want to do.
0: Yeah. I think that's a great place to kind of conclude the podcast where it's like, yes, this is the vision of home health. We want to expand into kind of being the telemedicine of, well, first men's health. And then obviously you have grander visions of moving to, just a whole person health. So thank you for coming on. I really appreciate mm-hmm. it. Tell the users or listeners where they can find you um, after this and where, where they can find hone health if they're looking for a testosterone prescription or even more. Right.
1: So yeah. if you you know everyone if you wanna get your blood tester, you you wanna you know try our service, it's honehealth.com. Um find me very easily. I'm probably spending too much time on Twitter or X, um, that's the easiest place at Stuart Blitz um linkedin or whatever but uh you know probably some more of a time on twitter but pretty easy to find
0: Sounds good and i think i'd like to conclude
1: finally the podcast with
0: um me being in the hot seat i've questioned you enough it's kind of like an interrogation but happy to have you ask me a few questions so that we can write out the well i guess
1: i'll ask ask you of all the entrepreneurs that you've spoken to has there been one common theme that you've seen sort of like in companies that have been more successful or, or growing? Has there been one theme of the founders or the, the operators that you've talked to that you kind of say, hey, everybody kind of feels like this or, or does this?
0: I think for me, the ones that I found most compelling are the ones who have, one, a clear vision of how they are going to get to their goal, or at least like have an idea of this is my priorities for the next three months, sex mixed months. And it's just that next step mentality and never you kind know, of staying stagnant and paralyzing about their decision. That's the ones that I've seen, or those are the ones that I've seen kind of go mm-hmm. for this. If you're asking me like just like successful, I think it's too simple to tell. A lot of the companies that I do are, are early stage startups are either venture backed. So I haven't gotten the chance to, interview someone who's just about to take their company public, right? So I guess success is a is a spectrum on that end. But I've seen the ones that have gone the this have the, the vision that, like, they know what the next steps are in order to get to their clear goal. But I, I don't know if that's a very compelling answer, but I think that's, like, where I've just seen, things go right because like they've seen this before they've done this
1: before and they have the lived experience to know the next. And, steps. and I guess the only question I have for you is being a, almost a physician or like, you know, in medical school and kind of doing that, yeah. how have you seen, like, have you seen a shift in, in your peers or physicians you work with in terms of wanting to embrace technology or, or go into more industry versus, um, you know, see patients say today?
0: Yeah, that's actually a very good question. I've actually been, grappling with it myself, like thinking about, oh, industry is cool, but like, I also like to treat patients. I think for a large majority of people, I would say 80% are mostly in this, hey, I want to do this to treat patients. Um, To your point about doctors do want to see patients, they do want to do the best by their patients. That's largely true across all of the Med- medical students that i've talked to i think physicians are looking to industry post pandemic as a salvo for burnout and i think that's the wrong way to think about it because industry can be just as painful mm-hmm. i guess because you're gonna have to learn a new skill and you're like 30 when you finish training so think about the minimum th- physician who's like leaving it's like 26 27 year who's going into an entry-level role in industry i think at that point Physicians just want a salvo. And I don't think those people are really successful in industry. I think to your point about what have I seen, a lot of medical students now, I'm in in an organization called MD Plus. A lot of them want to go into industry or VC or investing because they see the potential that it has to change a lot more people's lives quicker, especially with these D2C um, businesses rising up it's a lot more about patient control and patient choice. And because of that, we're seeing a lot of shift into consumerization of healthcare.